1 Kings chapter 22, if you would stand with me and uh, let me read from uh, verse 5 down through uh, verse 8, and then I'll read from another portion of the chapter. Uh, Hear the word of the living God. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Now he's wanting to go into battle. And then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Now I shall go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? Now that's the question to the prophets. Shall I go to battle or should I not? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it under the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And he is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. And then the king of Israel called, or excuse me, now let's go to the end of the chapter. So we have a king, he doesn't like Micaiah the prophet. Why? Because Micaiah doesn't tell the king what he wants to hear. And all the other 400 men do. Look at verse 19. Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. Now this is Micaiah's prophecy. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all of the host of heaven standing by him on his right and his left hand. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramath Gilead? And one said this while another said that. And then the spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. And then Zedekiah, the son of Kenaniah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of the Lord pass from from me to speak to you. And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. And then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Amon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, And thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. And Micaiah said to the king, If you return, if you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, listen, all you people. Now that ends that portion of God's reading, brothers and sisters. Now let's turn to um, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, before I read the message, hopefully you were able to understand what was taking place in the Old Testament text 
The king didn't like what Micaiah had to say, but the Lord revealed to Micaiah, and Micaiah revealed to the king that he is not going to prosper if he goes into battle. In fact, he's not going to make it back. And, the, and he was struck for that truth. He was, he was hit on the side of the face for speaking truth to the king. And the king had him thrown into prison for speaking according to the prophecy God had revealed to him. And all Micaiah said in accordance with that is, if I have not spoken truly, you know, so be it, but you are not returning to me. And the rest of the story talks about how the king goes into battle and he's got in the back of his mind what Micaiah prophesied. And the king thinks he's going to be wiser than God. And so he asked one of his servants to trade uniforms with him. You put my armor on and I put your armor on and they're going to think you're the king. And I should be able to get away with anything that is that's needed. And of course the king in the armor of a regular soldier goes into battle. And of course the battle rages on. And of course there's one soldier who has one arrow left. And he wants to expend that arrow. He wants to get rid of it. And what does he do? He just decides to draw his bow back and let it fly into the air at no at no target, not aiming at any target. And it strikes the king in the joint of his armor. And of course, he dies. Fulfilling the prophecy of Micaiah. That what the Lord had spoken to the Micaiah, the true prophet, was the truth. Now, brothers and sisters, that has great importance and relevance today. Fallen men since the fall have worked really hard to shun the truth and to create for themselves a new reality, a different reality than what God says is so. And so that's where this sermon comes in, brothers and sisters. Let's begin this message by J.C. Ryle. What are we to understand by dogma? Before we go a step further, let us clearly define what dogma means. Dogma, says Garbet, is to be established from dogmatism. Dogma is a word that simply means a, a definite ascertained truth, which is no longer the subject of inquiry, simply because inquiry has ended and the result has been accepted. Wherever there is any fixed, ascertained truth, whatever, there must be dogma. If there is no dogma, then there is no known truth. So he establishes what it is. Dogma, says Dean Hook in his church dictionary, quote, is a word used originally to express any doctrine of religion formally stated. Dogmatic theology is the statement of positive truths in religion. To these definitions, J.C. Ryle says, I shall add one more remark by way of caution. We must never forget that there is a wide difference between dogma in science and dogma in religion. In religion, to be dogmatic is often a positive duty. In science, it's often sheer presumption. 
In the study of natural science, on the one hand, we have no inspired book to guide us. We have no revelation from heaven to teach us about biology or chemistry or astronomy or geology. We can only ascertain conclusions in these subjects by careful observation of phenomenon, by patient investigation and induction and induction of facts, or by a diligent use of such helps as a microscope or and telescope afford us. Even then, our conclusions are often very imperfect. We ought, to, we ought to be modest in our assertions and be aware of overmuch positiveness. Here's what he says. He quotes a man named Faraday. He says, The highest wisdom in many matters of science, says Faraday, is to keep ourselves in a state of judicious suspension. All human knowledge is but fragmentary. All of us who call ourselves students of nature possesses only portions of natural science. That's what he says. To be always dogmatic in natural science is a mark of shallow and conceited mind. Now, this is a scientist of the day saying this. But what we have to realize is that many of the scientists of that day were of the Christian cloth. They were very much men who understood God's creation and was inspired to observe the consistency and order of nature because they believed in a creator. Now, he goes on, brothers and sisters, in religion, on the contrary, we start with an infallible Bible to guide us. Our only business is to ascertain the meaning of that Bible. When it speaks plainly, clearly, and unmistakably upon any point, then we have a perfect right to form positive and decided conclusions and to speak positively and decidedly. Now listen to this. Dogmatic language in such cases is not, is not only not presumption, but a downright duty. You got that? And not to be positive when God has spoken positively is a symptom of ignorance, timidity, or unbelief. Now let me read that again, because listen to what he says. This is, addresses the equivocation we find ourselves doing today. The world loves Christians who equivocate on the truth. But listen to what he says. Dogmatic language. That is, we shouldn't be afraid to say God is. God is holy. God is trinity. There is a hell. There is judgment. These sorts of things. Dogmatic language in such cases is not only not presumption, but a downright duty. And not to be positive when God has spoken positively is a symptom of ignorance, timidity, or unbelief. The subject I'm going to take up is the importance of holding distinct and systematic theological views and of making positive statements of doctrine and teaching and dispensing of God's Word. With the Bible in a minister's hand, there ought to be nothing flattering, hesitating, or indefinite in his exhibition of the things necessary to salvation. That is, what's, what's he saying a minister ought to be? Forthright and firm in teaching Scripture. 
He must not shrink from making strong assertions and drawing sharply cut, well-developed conclusions. He must not hesitate to say, quote, This is certainly true and you ought to believe it. This other teaching is certainly false and you ought to refuse it. This is right and you ought to do it. This is wrong and you ought not to do it, end quote. That's one thing J.C. Ryle says, a minister ought to call upon God's people to believe certain doctrines and to practice them and not other things. It is the duty of ministers, he says, to speak like men who have quite made up their minds, who have grappled with Pilate's question, what is truth? And are prepared to give the question an unhesitating answer. In short, if men mean to be faithful ministers of the New Testament, they must hold and teach dogma. And of all Christian ministers, there are none, I am convinced, who ought to be, uh, who ought to be so distinct and decided in their statement of dogma as the ministers of the Church of England. Now remember, J.C. Ryle was a bishop, a clergyman of the Church of England, and he's saying we ought to hold, we ought to be clearly dogmatic or uh, in asserting these distinctive truths. And he's going to go on and tell us why. The subject, I venture to think, is one of vast importance in the present day. And it needs to be pressed on the attention both of clergymen and laymen. But the subject is very wide and deep and, and can only be touched lightly. I shall therefore limit myself with laying down two general propositions and offering a few remarks upon each. The object of my first proposition will be to prove the particular importance of dogma in these days. Let me repeat that. The object of my first proposition will be to prove the particular importance of dogma in these days. Secondly, the object of my second proposition will be to show the great encouragements there are to hold and teach dogma. That's the second. Now the first. My my first proposition is this. A strong dislike to all dogma in religion is a most suspicious and growing sign of the time. Hence arises the particular importance of holding and teaching it. Let me repeat it. My first proposition is this. A strong dislike to all dogma in religion is a most suspicious and growing sign of the times. Hence arises the particular importance of holding and teaching it. This dislike is a fact, he says, of his day. Now, I want you to think about your day. I am bold to say, which needs realizing and recognizing, it does not receive the attention it deserves. We have been so much occupied of late years in resisting those who believe too much that we have somewhat overlooked those who believe too little. Whether we like to hear it or not, there is a sore disease in the land. Which is, like, which is eating like a, a canker into the vitals of Christianity. It is a pestilence walking in darkness which threatens to infect a large proportion of the rising generation. The evidence of this dislike to dogma 
are so abundant that the only difficulty lies in selection. What will I choose to bring before you? Unless we are men who are having eyes who see not and ears who hear not, we may see them on every side. First, I might ask an intelligent man, for example, to mark the vague tone of the great majority of newspapers when they touch religious subjects. Now, remember, he didn't have the Internet. People got their news from the newspaper. Okay, but notice what he's going to say about those who write these articles. He will find, the reader of the newspaper will find that they are generally willing to praise Christian morality. Not today. They too often ignore Christian doctrine. I might ask him to observe the bitterness in which school boards frequently speak of what they are pleased to call theology and how ready they are to shovel it all aside under the vague name of sectarianism. Now listen to what he's about to say. Listen to this illustration. I might ask him to analyze the most popular fictions and novels of the last 40 years which profess to paint Christians and to notice how the poetry almost invariably avoids everything like doctrine and exhibits the model Christian like a cut flower at a flower show, a mere bloom without a root. Now, it is nothing new for people to to scandalize Christians. We want to question anybody. If they're a Christian, they're really guilty. They don't know it. You may not recognize it. We're doing it today, and what so many Christians are willing to do is jump on the bandwagon for the sake of tolerance, acceptance, and love, and then we begin to castigate every Christian that's ever walked the face of the earth. There's some weakness in them. We're seeing it all around us. I might ask him... He says, to look at the concern which liberal speakers are constantly showing in addressing popular audience to sweep away all denominational Christianity and to throw aside creeds and confession as old worn out clothes which only fetter the limbs of the modern man. In each of these cases, let him note one common symptom. That is a morbid, unreasoning desire to have the fruits of Christianity without the roots of the fruits of Christianity without the roots of Christian morality, without Christian dogma. And then let him deny, if he can, that a dislike of dogma is a widespread evil in our times. Same is true today. We all want goodness, charity. We all want love and acceptance, all these good things, but we don't want to acknowledge where those things come from. Okay, And we act as if God, ought to be, God should be pleased that we just want those things, but God's not pleased when we don't acknowledge the root of those things. Secondly, I will then ask any intelligent man to examine the opinions commonly expressed in the talk of private life. You have only got to bring up the subject of religion in society and you will get further proofs still in five houses out of six where people have anything like real religion. Now he's talking about Christians. You will find that they make the regular idol of earnestness. Now listen to what he says. They do not pretend to know anything about controversies and disputed questions are to have any opinion as to who is right and who is wrong. They only know what they admire. 
earnestness. And they cannot think that earnestness, hardworking men, can be unsound in the faith. You know what J.C. Ryle says? Listen, Christians don't know what's going on. They don't know anything that's going, any controversy, any of the attacks on the church. They don't know any of the doctors that are under, under attack. He said all they know is that they see somebody and go, I like him. They work hard. They must be good men. He said that's killing them. He goes on, he says, Tell them that any earnest clergyman whom they name does not preach the gospel, and they are downright offended. Impossible, they say. Whatever doctrines an earnest man holds and teaches, they think it narrow and uncharitable and illiberal in you to distrust him. In vain you remind them that zeal and laboriousness are useless if a minister does not teach God's truth and that Pharisees and the Jesuits had zeal enough to compass land and sea, they know nothing about that. They do not profess to argue. All they know is that work is work, and that an earnest man must be a good man, and cannot be a wrong man, whatever he teaches. And what does it all come to? They dislike dogma, and it will not make up their minds as to what is truth. It's so easy to point out some attribute of a person to admire and neglect what they teach. It's easy. It's a temptation to pick out something you admire about the person and overlook what they teach. That's a danger. It's a problem. Hitherto, he says, we have all seen the evil I am considering in its most common and diluted forms. Thirdly, If we want to see it in its more solid and crystallized state, we have only to turn to the preaching and the writings of the broad Christian community of our day. I will not weary my readers with a catalog of the strange and loose utterances which come incessantly from that quarter. I mean, think about all the Christian books on the shelves. Okay? He says about inspiration, about the atonement, about the sacrifice and death of Christ, about the incarnation, about miracles, about Satan, about the Holy Spirit and future punishment. I will not pain them by recounting the astounding theory sometimes propounded about the blood of Christ. Time would fail me if I tried to sketch the leading features of a misty system which appears to regard all religions as more or less equal. And in which tabernacles seem to be wanted for Socrates, Plato, Pythagoras, Seneca, Confucius, and Mohammed, as well as for Christ, Moses, and Elijah, all forsooth being true prophets, great teachers, great masters, and great leaders of thought. You think that's a problem today? We just all make everything equal and the same? I shall content myself with the remark. That dislike to dogma is a prominent characteristic of the leaders and champions of the broad Christian church. We don't want the particulars. We don't want precision. We don't want preciseness. It's so much easier to hide in the broad strokes of things. This is what you have, brothers and sisters, when a prominent Presbyterian minister when asked the question are homosexuals going to heaven and it takes him five minutes five minutes to answer the question 
And at the very end, he says, well, I wouldn't say that. I would say they just are going to endure a Christless eternity. That's what this, that's what J.C. Ryle is talking about. But he was never touched by the presbytery. He was never disciplined. He was never brought up on charges. He was, he's, he's too popular. Search their sermons, he says, in books, and you will find plenty of sad examples, plenty of great swelling words about the universal fatherhood of God, about charity and light and courage and manliness and large-heartedness and wide views and free thought, plenty of mere windbags, high-sounding abstract terms, he says, such as the true and the just and the beautiful and the high-souled and congenial and the liberal and so forth and so on. He says they have all of these sermons and swelling words and people you know love to hear them but alas there is an utter absence of distinct solid positive doctrine and if you look for a clear systematic account of the way of pardon and peace with God of the right medicine for a burdened conscience and the true cure for a broken heart of faith and assurance and of justification and regeneration and sanctification, you look in vain. See, you can't find those things. But you can find how to be more loving and acceptable in the social environment. But you can't, be, you can't find how to be made right with God. The words indeed you may sometimes find, but not the reality. The words in new and strange senses, new definitions. Fair and good looking on the outside, but rotten like fruit on the inside. Empty and worthless. But one thing, I repeat, is abundantly clear. Dogma and positive doctrinal statements are the abomination of the broad Christian church. They, their cry is continually down with dogma, down with it, even to the ground. I mean, it's something we might hear today is, you know, don't bog me down with all this doctrine. Don't bog me down with all this theology. Just, you know, encourage me. I don't go to church to be taught or instructed. I don't go to church to learn about the Trinity or how to be made right with God or how bad I am. I want to go to church to be enthused. I want to go to church to be inspired. Y'all heard that today? I don't want to go have to use my mind. I don't want to go to learn anything. He goes on, he says, I'm afraid that time and space would fail me if I traveled outside our own communion in order to find additional proof of the widespread dislike to dogma, which we need to realize in this age. We hear it among the nonconformists. This was a group in the day of, of the church in that day. They were called nonconformists. They, they were not Episcopalian. They were not of the Church of England. He says, The oldest and sounding of them complain bitterly that the plague has begun among the descendants of the Puritans and that old Orthodox views are becoming scarce. So they were complaining that there was a turning away from dogma. He says, We hear it from Scotland not a few Presbyterians are beginning to speak contemptuously of the assembly's catechism as a yoke which ought to be thrown off. Even the Presbyterians of the day were tempted to say, you know what, we don't really need to be strongly confessional, just broadly confessional. 
We don't really need to know what's in the confession. We just need to have a confession. There's a big difference, isn't there? We hear it from Switzerland. The churches of Zwingli and Calvin are said to be so deeply tainted with Socinianism. Socinianism is a heresy that does not believe Jesus is God. That he's only man. So an error had crept into the churches where Calvin and Zwingli once ministered. Now they don't even believe in the Trinity. They're struggling when he said, since they threw creeds overboard, that it might almost, to speak figuratively, make their founders turn over in their graves. Because what did Calvin and Zwingli and all these men do? Teach doctrine. Teach doctrine. We hear it from America. When Mr. and Mrs. Hannah Whithall Smith addressed the crowds at the famous Brightonton Conference, I couldn't find out what this exactly was, though I tried. Their simple-minded and well-meaning hearers must have been puzzled to hear the often reiterated expression, quote, we don't want theology. Now, this was back in the 1800s. I'm sure along the lines of uh, Charles Finney, a great heretic of the church during that day, um, you can look him up and educate yourself on that. But I trust, he says, I have said enough to convince you that when I speak of dislike the dogma as one of the largest and most formidable perils of the day, I do not use any exaggerated language or speak without good reason. The causes of this dislike the dogma we need to not go far to seek. There is nothing new about it and nothing therefore which ought to surprise us. And the older the world gets, the nearer to the second advent of Christ, the more clearly we will see that prophecy fulfilled. We only see a development of an old disease. There never have been lacking thousands of lazy worldly Christians who say with the poet, and I don't know who this poet was, but for modes of faith, let graceless zealots fight. He can't be wrong whose life is in the right. For modes of faith, let graceless zealots fight. He can't be wrong whose life is in the right. Eighteen centuries ago, the Apostle Paul forewarned us, quote, A time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. The natural man hates the gospel and all its distinctive doctrines and the delights in any vain excuse for rejecting it. The plain truth is that the root of the whole evil lies in the fallen nature of man and his deeply seated unbelief in God's infallible word. I suspect we have no idea how little saving faith there is on the earth. How few people entirely believe the Bible and its truths. One man is proud. He, delights, he dislikes the distinctive doctrines of Christianity because they leave him no room to boast. Another is, is lazy and indolent. He dislikes distinctive doctrines because it summons him to troublesome thought and self-inquiry and mental self-exertion. Another is grossly ignorant. He imagines that all distinctive doctrine is a mere matter of words and names and that it does not matter a jot what we believe. Another is thoroughly worldly. He shrinks from any distinctive doctrine because it condemns 
His darling world. But in one form or another, I am satisfied that original sin is the cause of all the mischief. Of the whole result is the vast numbers of men greedily swallowed down the seemingly new idea that doctrine is of no great importance. It supplies a convenient excuse for their sins. The consequences of this widespread dislike to doctrine are very serious in the present day. Whether we like it, whether we like to allow it or not, it's epidemic which is doing great harm. It creates, fosters, and keeps up an immense amount of instability in religion. It produces what I must venture to call, if I may coin the phrase, a jellyfish Christianity in the churches. That is, a Christianity without bone or muscle or power. A jellyfish, as everyone knows, who has been much by the seaside, is a pretty and graceful object when it floats in the sea contracting and expanding like a little delicate, transparent umbrella, yet the same jellyfish when cast on the shore is a mere helpless lump without capacity for movement, self-defense, or self-preservation. Alas, it is a vivid type of much of religion of this day of which the leading principle is, quote, no dogma, no distinct tenets, and no positive doctrine. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen who seem not to have a single bone in their theological body. They have no definite opinions. You know, they always want to say, I don't know, not sure. Can homosexuals be Christians? I don't know. I'm just not sure. They belong to no school or party. They are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all. We have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year, sermons without a point or an edge to them. They are as smooth as billiard balls, awaking no sinner and edifying no saint. We have legions of jellyfish young men annually turned out from our seminaries, armed with a few scraps of secondhand philosophy who think it a mark of cleverness and intellect to have no decided opinions about anything in religion and to be utterly unable to make up their minds as to what Christian truth is. That's amazing. That is prophetic. Their proud hearts are not satisfied with truths which satisfied godly, the godly in former years. Their only creed is a kind of anythingism. They believe everything and are sure and positive about nothing. Alas, and worst of all, we have myriads of jellyfish worshipers, respectable church-going people who have no distinct, definite views about any point of theology. They cannot discern things that differ any more than colorblind people can distinguish colors. They think that everybody is right, nobody is wrong. Everything is true, nothing is false. All sermons are good, none are bad. Every minister is sound, and none are unsound. They are tossed to and fro like children by every wind of doctrine. They are often carried away by any new and excitement sensational movement. They are ever ready for new things because they have no firm grasp on the old scriptural truths. All this and much more, which I cannot speak particularly, I cannot now speak particularly, is the result of unhappy dread of dogma which has been so strongly developed and is laid out 
laid such hold on many churchmen in these latter days. I turn from the sad picture I have exhibited with a sorrowful heart. I grant that it is a gloomy one, but I'm afraid it is only too accurate and true. Let us not deceive ourselves, brethren. Quote, dogma and positive doctrine are at a discount just now. Instability and unsettled notions are the natural result and meet us in every direction. Never was it so important for laymen to hold systematic views of truth and for ordained ministers to enunciate dogma very clearly and distinctly in their teaching. The second proposition I wish to lay before your eyes are this. In spite of all that has been said about dogma, its advocates have no cause to be ashamed. That is, if you hold to the truth, don't be ashamed. I launched that statement without the slightest hesitation. The assailants of dogma make such boasting and blow their trumpets so loudly that I suspect some Christians lately have been rather frightened. They have thought that the ark was in danger and that most, mo- uh, that most moderate our tone and retire from the old paths. Let no man's heart fail at this crisis. There is no cause for alarm. It is the mark of, of ill-disciplined and half-savage armies to blow horns and beat drums and cover their real weakness by noise. And that's kind of what we see in the, in the world, isn't it? A lot of noise, a lot of threats. But there's no substance. They don't really, they just call names. They want to assassinate your character, but they don't really provide why you're wrong. It's just we're not going to like you if you're wrong. We're not going to like you if you hold that position. In quietness and confidence is our strength. In spite of all the hard words poured on dogma as barren, that is, worn out, injurious to free thought, (laughs) unsuited in the 19th century, and so forth, there remains a chain of facts in support of dogma, which I believe is impossible to explain away. In short, there is a mass of evidence which cannot be refuted. It is not enough to say, quote, we believe the Bible. We must distinctly understand what the leading facts and doctrine of the Bible are. And this is exactly the point where creeds and confessions are useful. I shall confine myself to a simple statement of certain broad facts, which ought to encourage every loyal Christian to hold distinct doctrinal views and not be ashamed of dogma. First, let us turn boldly to our Bibles. Is dogma there or not? Of course, I do not forget that this witness goes for little with many. That is, some people don't even know what's in their Bibles. They don't read them. They regard the Bibles as nothing more than a respectable collection of old Jewish writings of uncertain antiquity containing many good things but not an infallible book whose teachings they must bow to. Whenever it contradicts their so-called verifying faculty and inward consciousness and intuitive convictions, they refuse to accept its teaching. Now I shall have a word for these gentlemen by and by. Now the brothers and sisters, just briefly, 
Nothing's new, is it? Nothing's new here. But yet we see a major problem. If a Christian doesn't know their Bibles, how do they know they're following the right things? And then you can't just say, well, my heart tells me something. Why? The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? You have to be, you have to, the whole man has to be engaged, mind and heart, mind and heart in these things, informed, rational, logical, reasonable. That's why we're not ashamed to speak of these things because they are all of that, those things I mentioned. But I thank God that many clergymen and laymen are of a different mind. There are yet left some thousands among us who have not forgotten their ordination vows, in which clergymen profess their determination to, quote, instruct the people out of Scripture, and to teach nothing necessary to salvation but that which may be concluded and proved by Scripture. To them and thousands like them I can confidently appeal to. We do not, or do we not then all know and feel as we read our New Testaments that dogma meets us in every book from Matthew to the book of Revelation? Is not the fashionable claptrap assertion that the chief object of the Gospels and Epistles is to teach us high moral precepts and charity rather than dogma? so utterly contrary to the real facts of the case which meet our eyes when we read the Bible. That means you may say, somebody says, well, the Bible was written so we might learn how to love each other. Well, that's, that's a truth, but not a near primary truth. See? Um, there are things that are true, the things that, that we must recognize as not primary and dogmatic. See? And that's why it's important for us to know our Bibles are not dogma and doctrine so intimately woven up and intermingled with moral precepts in the Bible that we cannot separate them? You know, a lot of people go to the Bible and they read it because they want to be good people. But you can't be that good person without knowing the theology. you got to know the theology. We all know that there is only one answer to such questions. As for those unhappy men who can stand at a reading desk and there read such books as John's Gospels and the Epistles of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Hebrews to their congregations and then denounce dogma and cry down dogmatic theology and sneer at bibliolatry in the pulpit, I can only say that I do not understand them. And believe it or not, that's a, something that you hear today. Well, y'all worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. See, that sounds so, so truthful, doesn't it? Oh, whoa. Because we want to first go, wait a minute. Well, we worship Jesus. The point is that Andy Stanley is one of those people in Atlanta. We don't worship the Bible. You guys worship the Bible. Y'all worship theology and doctrine. We worship Jesus. The point is, where are you going to go to learn about Jesus? Where are you going to go to make sure you got the right Jesus? Here. It sounds, look, if you're not careful, you'll fall for these statements. I can only say that I do not understand them. He who gives up teaching dogma, in my opinion, J.C. Ryle says, may just as well say that he gives up teaching the Bible. You're not going to teach theology, you're not teaching the Bible. We cannot neglect dogma without ignoring Scripture. 
The second thing, he says, we can turn boldly to the 39 articles. That's the confession of the Church of England. Is dogma not in them? I could say the Westminster Confession. Okay, to you. Is not dogma in the confession? Once more, I do not forget that many think very little of that admirable confession of faith. They coolly tell us in that offhand conceited style, which is so painfully common in this day, that nobody really believes all those articles. Some tell us plainly that they regard the 39 articles as a burdensome stone and a hobgoblin on men's consciences, and that we would do far better to abolish them, throw them overboard, and be content with no creed at all, but all this very... all this time every minister on taking possession of a church is obligated to declare publicly that he will teach and preach nothing contrary to the 39 articles and brothers and sisters that's widely rampant in the presbyterian church today the westminster confession of faith larger and shorter catechisms yet all these articles is but a wise compendium of dogmatic statements With few exceptions, they are a series of doctrinal assertions carefully drawn out of Scripture, which the church regards as of special primary importance. Where I would like to know is our honesty. If we shrink from teaching dogma after pledging ourselves to teach the articles, where is plain faithfulness to our ministerial promises if we do not teach and preach distinct systematic doctrine? Now he brings up a point. Ministers take a vow to teach the standards of their church, but what happens when they don't really believe the standards of their church and they take a promise, they make a promise to teach it? That's it. That's called cross fingers. That's a lack of integrity. That's a problem. See? As for those clergymen who retain positions in our church, while they openly contradict these confessions and these articles are deliberately sneer at the statements of doctrine as narrow, illiberal, or unsuited for the 19th century, I can only say once more that I do not understand them. I can admire their cleverness, but I cannot see that they are in the right place in the pulpit. He who is not for dogma, no articles and no creeds, in my judgment, is no true loyal minister. In the third place, we can turn boldly to the prayer book. They have a prayer book. Is dogma not there? That famous book with all of its unquestionable imperfections finds favor in the eyes of all the school of thought within our pale and myriads of outsides. You rarely meet with anyone, however broad or liberal, however opposed to creeds or articles, who quarrels over our time-honored prayer book or would like to see it much altered. Week after week, its, uh, it's old familiar words are read all over the globe. Wherever the English flag flies, the English language is spoken, the older world grows and more men seem disposed to say with George Herbert on his deathbed, quote, the prayers of my mother, the Church of England, are, are there are none like them. What he says is this prayer book has the heart of so many broadly. But now he's going to say, but guess what's in it? Dogma. All this time, it is a curious fact that an immense amount of dogmatic theology runs through the prayer book. 
It underlines its simple petitions. He who sits down and makes a list will be surprised to find what a large amount of doctrinal statements the old book contains about the Trinity, about the deity of Christ, about the personality of the Holy Spirit, about the sacrifice and mediation of Jesus Christ, about the work of the Holy Spirit, and many other points. They occur again and again in sentences which we are so familiar with that we overlook in its contents. Now, have you ever tried to pray without being dogmatic? God, maybe you're faithful. I mean, think about praying, trying to pray and not have a system of theology. Maybe you're good today. It'd be hard, wouldn't it? Take for a single instance the dogma of eternal punishment. This question has been raised late whether the Church of England has anything to say about it. Yet all this time the prayer book contains three singularly strong expressions on the subject. What he's saying is it was becoming popular in his day for men to reject eternal damnation. Almost the first petition is from everlasting damnation, good Lord, deliver us. In the burial services, we say by the side of an open grave, deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. Even in the church catechism, we teach children in the Lord's Prayer, they ask to be, quote, kept from our ghastly enemy and everlasting death. Once more, I say, he who thinks little of dogma and yet uses the prayer book of the Church of England is very inconsistent and is occupying, whether he knows it or not, a most untenable, unreasonable position. I assert confidently that the prayer book is full of dogmatic theology. And now, fourthly, I have a word for the numerous opponents for dogma who care little for the Bible, who care little for confessions, and care little for the prayer book. I say that the advocates of I say that the advocates of dogma can turn boldly to the whole history and progress of the, proclam- of the pro- propagation of Christianity from the time of the apostles down to the present day and fearlessly appeal to the testimony. I challenge anyone to deny what I am going to say and disprove it. I affirm unhesitatingly that there never has been any spread of the gospel, any conversion of nations or countries, any successful evangelistic work, except by the proclamation of dogma. I invite any opponent of dogmatic theology to name a single instance, a country, a town, or people, which has ever been Christianized, moralized, or civilized by merely telling men that Christ was a good teacher that they must love one another, and that they must be true and just and unselfish and generous and brotherly and household and the like. You see what he's did? No, 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 he says. Not one single victory can such teaching show us. Not one trophy can such teaching exhibit and has wrought no deliverance on the earth. Victories of Christianity, wherever they have been won, have been won by distinct doctrinal theology, by telling men of of Christ's vicarious death and sacrifice, by showing them Christ's substitution on the cross in His precious blood, by teaching them justification by faith, by bidding them believe in a crucified Savior, by preaching ruin by sin, redemption by Christ, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, by lifting up the brazen serpent, by telling men to look and live, to believe, repent, and be converted. This, brothers and sisters, is the only teaching which for 18 centuries God has honored with success. 
and is honoring to the present day as well, home and abroad. Let the clever advocates of the broad, undogmatic theology, the preachers of gospel earnestness and sincerity, oh wow, and cold morality show us at this day any English village, parish, city, district which has been evangelized without dogma, they can't do it. And they never will. Christianity without dogma is a powerless thing. It may be beautiful to some minds, but it is childless and barren. It is a cold and sterile as the moon. There is no getting over facts. The good that is done in the earth may be comparatively small. Evil may abound and ignorant impatience may murmur and cry out that Christianity has failed. But Depend on it. If we want to do good and shake the world, we must fight with the old apostolic weapons, the stick of dogma. No dogma, no fruits. No positive evangelical doctrine, no evangelizing. And then lastly, we may turn boldly to the lives of the most eminent saints who have ever adorned the Christian church. Since the great head left the world and summoned them as witnesses, I will not weary my readers with long list of names, for happily they are legion. Let us examine the holiest fathers, reformers, and Puritans, and Anglicans, and dissenters, and churchmen of every school, Christians generally of every name, nation, and people, and tongue. Let us search their diaries, analyze their biographies, and study their letters. Let us just see what manner of men they have been in every age, who by consent of all their contemporaries have been holy, saintly, and godly. Where will you find one of them who did not cling to dogma? Who did not hold certain great distinct doctrinal views and live by faith of them? I am satisfied that you will not find one. In their clearness of perception and degree of spiritual light, in the, prop, in the proportion they have assigned to particular articles of faith, they have differed widely. In their mode of expressing their theological opinions, they have not all agreed. But they have all always had one common stamp and mark. They have not been content with vague ideas of earnestness, goodness, sincerity, and charity. They have had certain systematics sharply cut and positive views of truth. They have known whom they have believed and what they have believed and why they have believed it. And so it always will be. You will never have Christian fruits without Christian roots. Whatever novel writers may say, who will never have imminent holiness without dogmatic theology. And now let us turn to the deathbeds of those who die in solid comfort and good hope. Appeal to them. There are few of us who are not called on occasionally as we travel through life to see people passing through the valley of the shadow of death and drawing near to their latter end in those things unseen and eternal. We know that a vast difference there is in the manner in which such people leave the world. And the amount of comfort and hope which they seem to feel. Can any of us say that we ever saw a person die in peace who did not know distinctly that what he was resting on for acceptance with God and could only say in reply to iniquities that he was earnest and sincere? I can only give my own experience, he says. I never saw one. Oh, no. 
The story of Christ's moral teaching and self-sacrificing example and the need of being earnest and sincere, sincere and like Him will never soothe the down and dying pillow. Christ the teacher, Christ the great pattern for our lives, Christ the prophet will not suffice. We need something more. We need the story of Christ dying for our sins and raising again for our justification. We need a Christ the mediator, Christ the substitute, Christ the intercessor, Christ the redeemer in order to meet the king of terrors with confidence and say, Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Not a few, I believe, who have gloried in all their lives in rejecting dogmatic religion have discovered at last that their broad theology is a miserable comforter and the gospel of mere earnestness is no good news at all. Not a few, I firm, I firmly believe, could be named, who at the eleventh hour have cast aside their favorite new-fashioned views and have fled to the refuge of the precious blood of Christ and left the world with no other hope than the old-fashioned evangelical doctrine of faith in a crucified Jesus. Nothing in their life's religion has given them such peace as the simple truth grasped at the 11th hour. Just as I am, you know the song, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come, you, you biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Surely when this is the case, we have no need to be ashamed of dogmatic theology. And now let me lead the subject. Let me wind it all up with the expression of my earnest hope that thou, all honest, true-hearted churchmen, will walk in the steps of their forefathers and stick to the old weapons which they have wielded so well and successfully. Let no scorn of the world, let no ridicule of witty writers, let no sneers of liberal critics, let no secret desire to please and conciliate the public tempt us for one moment to lead the old paths and to drop the old practice of enunciating dogma, clear, distinct, well-defined, sharply cut dogma in all our teachings. Let us beware of being vague and foggy and hazy in our teachings. Let us be specifically particular about such points as original sin, inspiration and authority of Scripture, the finished work of Christ, the complete atonement made by His death, and the priestly office for which He exercises at the right hand of God, the inward work of the Holy Spirit on the heart, and the reality and the eternity of future punishment. Of all these points, let our testimony be, let our testimony not be yes and no, but yes and amen. Let the tone of our witness be plain, ringing, and unmistakable. Let the trumpet give, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? If we handle such subjects in a timid, flattering, half-hearted way as if we were handling a hot iron, and we had not made up our minds what is truth, then it is vain to accept people who hear us to believe anything at all. It is the bold, decided, outspoken, doctrinal man who must make a deep mark and set people's thinkings and turns the world upside down. It was dogma in the apostolic ages which emptied the heathen temples and shook Greece and Rome. It was dogma which awoke Christendom from its slumbers at the time of the Reformation and, and, the, and spoiled the Pope 
of a third of its subject. It was dogma which a hundred years ago revived the Church of England in the days of Whitfield, Wesley, uh, then and Roman and blew up the dying Christianity into a burning flame. It was dogma at this moment which gives power to every successful mission, whether at home or abroad. It's doctrine, 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 ringing loud and clear, which, like the ram's horns of Jericho, cast down the oppositions of devil and the sin. Let us go on clinging to doctrine and dogma. Whatever some may be pleased to say, we shall do well for ourselves, well for others, and well for our churches, and well for the cause of Christ in the world to hold to dogma. Let us conclude. Let us be careful, he says. Let us be careful. Though we may differ with some men, and we may differ greatly. Let us make sure we understand that which is essential and that which is minor. Let us be civil and courteous to everyone. However much we may disagree with him, let us never, never, never compromise and give up one jot or tittle to evangelical doctrine. He says this of Martin Luther, Accursed is that charity which is preserved by the shipwreck of faith or truth to which all things must give place, both charity or the apostle or the angel from heaven, end quote. What Luther was saying was, if you are, if you are made to choose between peace and truth, you better choose truth. If you, are choose, if you have to choose between faith and um, some other uh, lesser truth, pick faith. He goes on, he says, I desire to raise a warning voice against the growing tendency to be dogmatic about things which are not necessary to salvation, to be positive where the Bible is silent, to condemn and anathemize those whom God has not condemned, and to exalt things indifferent and secondary to a level of primary and weightier matters of the gospel. By all means, let us be bold and firm and unbending and still about every jot and tittle of evangelical dogma and Christ's truth, but let us not cultivate that detestable habit of excommunicating every man who does not see everything exactly like we do or pronounces some Hebrew words differently than we do. For Christ's sake, let us make allowances for slight varieties of opinion in non-essential matters. Let us not out-ritualize the ritualist and over-scrupulize and be over-scrupulousness in particularity. Let us not squabble about straws when the Canaanite and the Perizzites in the land or bite or devour one another like the wretched Jewish factions in the siege of Jerusalem when the Romans were thundering at the gates. Never, never, I am persuaded, was the old saying more true than it is today. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach another gospel other than the one we've preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, brothers and sisters, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be eternally condemned. Galatians 1, 8, 9. Let's pray.